Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today for our class, How Can Kohelet Quell the Curious Mind? An Exploration of a New Translation and Commentaries on the Strangest Book of the Hebrew Bible. We are honored to be joined today by Rabbi Dr. Aubrey Glazer, and I would love to tell you a little bit more about today's guest speaker. Rav Aubrey L. Glazer, PhD from University of Toronto and rabbinic ordination from JTSA, is honored to serve as Department Chair of Jewish Thought and Philosophy for Aleph Ordination Program. Aubrey is Founding Director and Editor-in-Chief of Panui, a think tank devoted to researching, reflecting, and teaching modern and contemporary Jewish mysticism in in a dynamic and authentic way to build conscious, compassionate community. Aubrey is currently honored to serve as Senior Rabbi of Beth Abraham Synagogue in Dayton, Ohio, and has served as Senior Rabbi in the following communities, Congregation Sharetzion, Montreal, Congregation Beth Shalom, San Francisco, as well as Jewish Community Center of Harrison, New York. Aubrey has served as a mentor for rabbinic students from diverse seminaries. As a graduate of the Institute for Jewish Spirituality, Aubrey co-led Jewish meditation retreats at Makor Or with Zoketsu Norman Fisher, as well as teaching Zohar in the philosophy circle of Lair House under the direction of Daniel C. Matt. Aubrey has completed certification of Kashru Rav HaMachshir and Jewish business leadership. Aubrey's recent publications on contemporary philosophy and theology include Mystical Vertigo, Tangle of Matter and Ghost, Leonard Cohen's post-secular songbook of mysticism, Jewish Jewish and Beyond, and God Knows Everything is Broken, Bob Dylan's Gnostic Mystical Songbook. Aubrey is co-editor and translator of a multi-volume series on Tiberian Hasidism called From Tiberius with Love. Rabbi Glazer, thank you so much for being here today. The person or the process that we all um, need to go to in terms of trying to understand the meaning and the direction and the purpose of our lives, I want to argue and to share with you and to and and to discover together is Kohelet. So, what is Kohelet? Who is Kohelet? How does it work? We're going to look at four distinct sections that are excerpted from the new translation of Kohelet that I was honored to. Um, to midwife into the world with my chavruta, my study partner and uh, colleague, Rabbi Martin Cohen, whose mellifluous translation we're gonna be looking at, as well as two layers of commentary that are part of a dialogue. And I imagined as I do in the book, that these are curious conversations uh, over coffee with Kohelet. So if you had a chance to sit down with Kohelet and have coffee with him or her, and I'll explain why I say that in a moment, because it's actually, somewhat ambiguous, the gender of Kohelet, if it's a person or if it's a process, but let's take a look in and uh, and just see, maybe show of hands um, or emojis, how many people have actually read through the entirety of the eight chapters of Kohelet before? Show of hands, emojis, okay. And of those whose hands are up, how many of you left more confused or more clarified than when you entered into that? curious conversation. Did you find that there was a certain quality of of clarity that emerged for you in in the process of reading Kohelet or did you leave with, with, um, let's see clarity, thumbs up for clarity. All right, so it looks like thumbs up for confusion or lack of of clarity. What I wanna do is to go through, as I mentioned, four excerpts of just given the time that we have together. And I want to share with you a verse, a translation, and then the, the dialogical commentary, because this has emerged out of a chavrusa, out of a dyadic study relationship that really, in many ways, exemplifies the great work that's going on in Valley Beit Midrash as well. That comes from the House of Study. Marty and I were in conversation about this text. I want you to see and to partake in this conversation. So we're going to look at a verse. We're going to look at his translation, and then we're going to look at Marty's first layer of commentary, which sort of functions like Rashi, right? Remember the great um, scholars of, uh, of Parshanut, like Nechama Leibowitz would always ask, if you want to know what's going on in the verse, the first thing that Nechama Leibowitz would ask is, what's bothering Rashi? 
So we're going to ask ourselves what's bothering Marty in the first layer of commentary, which is called Kol Hator, and then come back uh, for another round of conversation to look at my commentary, which is called Ruach HaOrev. And as we go through it, we'll try to figure out what's bothering um, us in relationship to and in conversation with Kohelet. And then I want to take a few minutes after each of these for us to take a breath, to absorb what's being shared, and then to react for a few moments together to see if there might be some further clarity that emerges in terms of the direction of our lives. Because as I'm going to uh, suggest a number of times together, Kohelet I actually don't think is a person, but a process. But with that in mind, let's see what happens when we start by the, uh, the premise that the, the, the Megillah begins with, remember, which is read on the holiday of Sukkot. But I think it's something we should be reading every day of our lives. So I welcome you into this journey and I ask you to hold questions. You can put them in the chat if something comes up while we're going through it. But let's hold the questions until we go through the first three layers of this, each of these conversations. And then we'll take questions at the end of uh, each of these excerpts. So the premise of the Megillah and this experiment starts as follows, that life is as insubstantial as a single breath. Kohelet begins chapter one, verse one and two. Divrei Kohelet ben David, Melech Yerushalayim. Hevel havalim, ama Kohelet hevel havalim. These are the words of Kohelet, Ben David, king in Jerusalem. The merest of breaths, said Kohelet, the merest of breaths. Everything is as insubstantial as a single breath. And this is the key to the entire Megillah. If we go down a little further, let's take a look now and see in Kol Hator, Mechabritza Marty opens with this following framing. Moderns can begin to contemplate the author king's treaties by asking themselves, where do they stand on these matters? Can the sadness inherent in human existence be dissolved in the pursuit of knowledge? Does the tension between absolute inalterability of nature and the appearance of nature to be in constant state of flux depress us or inspire us? Does the brevity of life, Hevel Havalim, make human endeavor noble or insipid, pointless, or supremely meaningful? Does Kohelet's intention, contention that nothing exists more really than a deep breath, lead to the conclusion that all effort is almost by definition inane, and that only a slothful life devoid of strenuous effort to do anything at all will make any real sense for those lucky few possessed of true knowledge about the nature of things? These are the questions that Kohelet is laying out for us at our feet as we open the book, which is in the form of a Megillah, in the section of the Tanakh called Ketuvim, and we begin the process of reading. So we would call these grounding questions. We don't answer them, we just reflect on them. And we notice, even in the way that the questions are laid out, there's a tension, right, between one point and the other point, which we would sometimes in philosophy call a dialectic. There is a thesis, there is an antithesis, but there is no synthesis. There are just opposing points of view. And now we're going to open up into the conversation and into this experiment of looking at life for meaning. And so now in response to my to Marty, I continue the conversation with him and I respond to Marty by asking, are you one of those who blends them with the crowd, indistinguishable from the assembled? Or are you an individual who has the capacity to stand out, to winnow out the wisdom of experience and to assemble it, that's the key word, to assemble it into some coherent whole? These are the challenges before Kohelet, the one who aspires to not merely be the one, uh, one of those assembled and anonymous, but to be an assembler, a convener, that's why I'm suggesting it may not be a person, but a process, because the Hebrew word Kohelet, literally in its feminine form, means the one who is assembling, the one who is convening. What does it mean to be an assembler, really? Does the author merely want to bring people together like we're doing now at VPM? Right? We could say that Alex and Reb Shmuley are the Kohelet in this moment because they are bringing us and assembling us all 
together. That would mean it's a process, not a person. Or is Kohelet seeking to gather wisdom in the manner of a singular teacher looking to learn from students as well as to teach them? Or does Kohelet see him or herself as a kind of a goad, as a gadfly, as one whose purpose is to serve as the transformative beacon of wisdom, an assembler of wise thoughts who wishes to awaken those who slumber away to deeper awareness of themselves and their world. So that's the opening way of setting the table, laying the Megillah at our feet. Let's take a few minutes, just breathe in our Mirus breath, our Hevel Havalim. And uh, as we go through this process, I think one of the things, before we go on to the, the next section, Alex, uh, Alex will, will get ready for us. Let's open it up to the gallery for a moment and just see if there's anything that you notice coming either for the first time or for the 1500th time back to Kohelet, anything that emerges in terms of what's the curious conversation that is emerging around Kohelet this time, anything that you notice or question, a curiosity. One of the things about Kohelet is always to be curious in the nature of the conversation that we enter into together. So I see Bev has a hand up. Thank you. Two things that come up for me, and I'm only new to this, is the first book on Kabbalah that I got, not even knowing it was about Kabbalah, was God as a Verb. And when I hear you speak of this feminist, feminine energy like the Shekinah, I, I think, oh, well, that relates to the spiritual. So that's what it means for me. And when you spoke of gadfly, it reminds me of the indigenous trickster. Mm. And my way of looking at things is it doesn't matter what tradition, the truth is the truth, and it's going to come through in different ways that we can understand. So I find this quite amazing and lovely, and thank you. Well, that's, those are some wonderful observations. The verb, or at least the gerund form of Kohelet, does raise the question of the feminine, uh, not in terms of a God presence, which is a different, equally interesting conversation, but more... Uh, as a source of wisdom. However, you are onto something, you're intuiting something very interesting, which is um, again, part of a larger conversation we might have another time. Um, but scholars of the Bible like Tikvar Feimarkensky of Blessed Memory uh, wrote a very important book called In the Wake of the Goddesses. And she talks about the earliest presences of, uh, of the divine creative force within uh, the context of the Hebrew Bible. And if you go back and look, for example, at Proverbs, or in sections of Psalms or in Job, it was clear that Chochmah, which we're getting into because we are looking for wisdom, right? That's part of the quest of Kohelet, right? As Job also asks in another parallel section of the book of Ketuvim, these are all wisdom texts. Chochmah, wisdom, where can she be found? Chochmah is also feminine. And if you look at those sections in Proverbs where it, it speaks of the creation of the world, God turns to Chochmah as a co-creative partner to create the world through wisdom. And so that's a voice that um, echoes and shimmers through this text. And it's, I don't think it's a mistake that both Chochmah and Kohelet are declined in the feminine. It's part of the wisdom tradition that we're, we're trying to recover. So, and yes to the, the trickster observation, and also yes to the possibility that there is a universal wisdom that comes through the Hebrew sage that's meant to speak to all of us. Notice as we go through these excerpts and also as you reread, I hope you'll continue to reread Kohelet, there's nothing that is intrinsically um, particularistic about this wisdom. This is human wisdom. This is a guidance for what it means to live a life and to be human and to follow the path of, of Chochmah. And that's something that is also fascinating for us to think about. So thank you, Beth. Mona, great so to see you. Good to see you too. Um, <clears throat> it's interesting because, you know, Kohelet is often read very pessimistically. Uh, we could read the merest of breaths as a, as a wisdom tradition in terms of focusing on the moment. And I think you'll get it, probably get more into some of that. But but the contrast with, with its, you know, it's, it's all evanescent is the notion which I really like, and I'd never thought of before about Kohelet as an assembler, 
So we're assembling people, we're assembling ideas, we're assembling possibilities. That's a very different energy, um, much more positive than sort of it's all useless and what's the point? I appreciate the acknowledgement and the openness to that energy and it is a shift. And one of the things we have to acknowledge is also the challenge of translating the power of the Hebrew poetics into English, right? We are in the shadow of the King James version uh, of, uh, of translation and, and in that spirit, vanity of vanities, futility of futilities is the way that Hebel Hebelim has always been translated. And that sets a very pessimistic, nihilistic tone. I am trying along with Marty to suggest as another way of reconnecting to this wisdom path, which is not meant to be only, even if we do argue that it is pessimistic or I would say cynical, I think cynical might be more better, a more of a, a constructive term or skeptical, right? Harold Fish made that argument that Kohel was one of the first Hebrew ironists and as an ironist borders on, on, uh, on cynicism. But as I mentioned to open the conversation, it's actually cynicism that is paired with Simcha, right? When do we actually recite this Megillah? The sages were clear that we're not meant to be um, a people that are completely cynical and completely skeptical. We read this during the holiday, which is also known as Zman Simchatena, right? This is a time for the search for Simcha. And Kohelet asked the question about eight times in the Megillah, what is Simcha? Where can I find it and how long does it last? What is the nature of joy and pleasure? And as you said, is this something that is evanescent or is it something that is lasting? And so just, uh, appreciating your um, your acknowledgement of that one. It, it is a different energy and that's that's very intentional. And again, pay attention to the way that we feel when we look at this, um, this process of assembling wisdom together in a way that is not limited to just being cynical, but even if it's cynical and if it's somewhat skeptical, there is something else that is going on in the, in the process and in the framing together. So thank you. Let's turn to, uh, to Bob. Um, I'm just interested in this whole question of, of wisdom as a universal. Uh, and I mean, the, the passages in Proverbs that talk about Chochmah, uh, also there's nothing sort of specifically Israelite about you know, Lady Wisdom's speech. Uh, I mean, she talks about taking delight in human beings. Mm -hmm. So it's is this is this kind of universality? Is this sort of inherent in the wisdom tradition, uh, or you know, is it just something that crops up here and there? It's a great question, and I can only give you a partial answer because Marty and I are now moving on to the next of the Megillah, which will be Proverbs. So we're going to do a deep dive into Proverbs and see if our theory holds. But our intuition is yes. And yes, and yes, whether it's the book of Job, right? Which whose character basically is, as the Cohen brothers called him, a serious man, right? Job is every man, every person, and meant to be coming from the land of Uts, not just the place where pretzels are made, but really a place that is outside Israelite territory and tribal um, distinction to say, these are texts that ask the, the question, and Kohelet in particular, um, what does it mean to be human? And what does it mean to live a life that is guided by wisdom? So my, our, our contention is these are meant to be as universal uh, as possible in terms of the breadth and the scope of um, the search for Chochmah, but to also suggest that within the Israelite tribe, there is, we are carriers of that wisdom tradition. But as, um, as was mentioned by, uh, by Bev, every tribal tradition has their, their pearls of wisdom that they collect and that they transmit. And this is our process of, uh, of collecting and sharing that wisdom. So let's take a look at the, the next one. And I wanna ask others who are um, gathered around in this assembly to, um, to feel free to, uh, to join in and to share some reflections and feelings as well. And uh, given the mission statement of VBM, I thought this was an important one to look at as well in terms of social justice, because if we also assume, um, as Mona suggested, that Kohelet is um, sometimes mis, 
appropriated or at least mispre mispresented as being a cynic, then cynics also um, seem to look at the world from a very passive perspective. And this is also another one of the ways of, of challenging ourselves to look at how the question of justice emerges um, within the world and what does it mean to live in a world that is apparently uh, enveloped in injustice. And that's a big question that many of the wisdom texts are asking, not just Kohelet, but also Job and, uh, and some of the others in Ketubi. But let's take a look here and see. We're now on to chapter two. This is verse 24. I made some stress there on a few things that I wanted us to notice. First, the, the name of God that's used, as well as Chochmah, Dad, and Simcha. Let's take a look and see what that translates as. 224. And so in the end, I concluded there is no greater good for an individual than to eat and to drink and to endeavor to find some pleasure in this world. And even that, at least most of the time, is an unearned gift from God. The merest of breaths, said Kohelet, the merest of breaths, everything is insubstantial as a single breath. But God is not uninvolved in all this to the individual who acts nobly and well. God gives wisdom, understanding, and pleasure. To the sinner, God gives the unquenchable desire for riches and property, which wealth the sinner ends up passing along to whomever God earns God's favor. And this too is mere breath and pursuit of the wind. So what does Marty have to say about this section? In the end, Modern's using the second chapter of Kohelet as a ruminative focus for purposeful meditative effort, will succeed by best asking themselves the very question that, albeit mostly unasked, lurks behind all the author's musing. If life is nothing more than a long or short journey from cradle to grave, and if none can take money or learning along when it's all over anyway, then what exactly is the point of doing anything at all? Right? This becomes the ultimate question of the cynic. If we're all on our way from cradle to grave and we take nothing with us, then what is the purpose of life? Extremely cynical, as it appears to be, at least in the, the second chapter. Ruach HaOrev, when I respond to Marty, how truly good it is to be able to eat when hungry and to drink when thirsty and appreciate all that comes your way to satiety. Peeking through the latticework to see the hand of God at work may be surprising for a skeptical empiricist. This is what I call Kohelet, a skeptical empiricist. I'll explain at the moment, like Kohelet. But atheism, which we would expect from Kohelet if he was truly or she was this cynical, atheism is not an option because Elohim appears now already in the second chapter. Notice throughout this strange book of the Bible that God is addressed by Kohelet using the very generic and universal term for divinity in Hebrew, Elohim, and not with the formal tetragram or four-letter tribal name of God known as um, the Yud and the He and the Vav and the He that is revealed to Moses, the burning bush. Kohelet trusts that there is an ultimate calculus of why the righteous suffer while the evil prospers, and even if for the time being it remains an inscrutable mystery. In the truth of time, justice will be served, and the waiting within Elohim is a yearning for just desserts all to be paid out in due time. So let's um, come back together. We'll just take a breath of the uh, Hevel Havalim that we shared here. And notice a few of the things now that have emerged in the second chapter. As I mentioned, we now encounter the quest for Chochmah, as being stated. We're introduced to a relationship with Elohim as a divine power 
that permeates the universe in a universal and general way rather than a specific and tribal way, which again, Bob, goes to your question about whether this is universal or particularistic in terms of it's, um, it's the lens that it's using. And one of the ways that we can often find that is by looking at the name of God that's used by the author. And then the larger question of being mindful for even the unearned gifts that we have, like being able to eat and to drink and to think about the ways that the Hebrew Bible suggests that we should look at the bounty that we receive and our abundance as being part of a much larger calculus, right? If we look at the second paragraph of the Shema, there is a, an understanding in that kind of biblical theology in Deuteronomy that if you're good, if you're a good person and you do good deeds, then what happens? You'll be rewarded in due time. And if you are evil, you'll be punished in due time, right? The rain will fall with due season uh, or there will be famine. And so there is an understanding within the biblical theological mindset of the, of the book of Deuteronomy that the wisdom books are reacting to um, of something that is different in terms of its calculus. Kohelet sees how is it possible to live in a world that doesn't operate like the book of Deuteronomy? That actually, that I, I am a righteous person and I suffer, or there are evil per people that prosper. That calculus is a major radical challenge to the theological landscape that happens and is addressed in each and every one of the books of Ketuvim. And that challenge that every religion has to face is known by the very fancy word of theodicy, right? Why is it that if I'm righteous that I suffer? What is the meaning of my suffering? And when will justice emerge in a world that seems to be so profoundly unjust? These are the major challenges that every world religion has to, to, um, to contemplate. And if biblical monotheism is going to be something that is worth its weight on the search for wisdom, it has to provide some kind of guidance. That's part of the Chochmah that Kohelet is interested in exploring. So thoughts and reactions from other folks around the, uh, the Kohelet chain that we are creating here. Are there others that want to share? I'm going to turn to Bev in a moment, but others that want to, to um, share anything that you're noticing that's emerging in reading the text in this way together? Any curiosities that emerge or questions? Okay, so let me turn to, oh, there's a cat over here. Who's the cat? That's Lauren. Okay, let's turn it full. First turn to Lauren, AKA as a cat. Okay. Okay. She's in, she's in Toronto. It's interesting because it just popped in my mind just reading, you know, to enjoy, eat, drink. I mean, it's hedonistic, but it's also like returning to Gun Aiden. Right, because the, the first man, Adam Harishon and, and Chava, were basically told, "This is here for you, just enjoy it." And and this is before human beings went on to grain wisdom and the rest. But it's a very simple view. So if if our idea is to return to Gun Eden, however you believe that, if it's after death or if we through Tikkun Olam, maybe Mashiach's time will be Gan Eden, then this could be a description of it. Just a thought. It's just something that popped in my mind. I think it's very interesting to notice how we read the Hebrew Bible. And generally, the way it's presented to us is as the acronym of Tanakh, right? Which means that if you're going to read this book, then you should start with the book of Genesis, go through the Torah, the Pentateuch, then go through the prophets, the Nevi'im, and then eventually someday when we graduate, we'll get to Ketuvim, right? But the truth is, is that what would happen if we started, and this is an experiment that I've been challenging myself to do, what happens if we were to come back with the beginner's mind and to look at the Tanakh again, but to start from Ketuvim and to look at the entire <laughs> landscape of the Tanakh through the lens of Kohelet, right? And so these questions that you're bringing up, which really are the purpose, the direction, and the meaning of life, and you've raised a lot of very interesting and provocative things that Kohelet does deal with, both implicitly 
and explicitly that is in terms of is there an afterlife and i'll get back to that question in a moment in kohelet but asking the question what is it like to be a human being before there was abraham and sarah and before there was judaism and before there were all these covenantal agreements that led to this um, relationship and this expectation uh, of our um, relationship with God in the world, there was the human being that was trying to just learn how to be human before our eyes were opened. And once our eyes were opened in the garden, that's when, what tree was it said that we read, that we were eating from? And I said that we read from, but we also were eating from. It was the tree, Eitz Hadad Tovvera, right? It was the tree of knowledge that allowed there to be a binary distinction, a dialectic between good and evil, right? To be able to create categories. And that was, that was knowledge. But was that Chochmah? The mystics in our tradition have a lot of different views on that. But when we go back to the ancient wisdom of Kohelet, it's clear that there is another tree, another, another way um, that is the way of Chochmah, that asks us to go back to that moment before we ate from that particular tree and to say there is the ability to have da'at, which Kohala talks about in the second chapter already, right? Chochmah, da'at, v'simcha. But there is something called chokhmah, which seems to be coming from a, a different tree. It's a different way of looking at the world. And it's not necessarily about categories um, that lead us into these, um, these binary quandaries. So it's a different way of thinking and processing the world. And I want to say one more thing, and then let me turn to, um, to Robin and Bev, because you raise a lot of issues, Lauren, that I'm not gonna be able to answer, but I'm just gonna lay it out, which is part of the reason why I remain curious after all these years um, about Kohelet, is that on the surface of it, on its own terms, the Hebrew Bible does not know of an afterlife. Okay, I'll say that again, on its own terms, the Hebrew Bible, and we can argue, and I'm sure you have these conversations with your millennial uh, friends who are evangelical Christians and others who say, no, 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 the book of Ezekiel, the book of Daniel, there's all these hints at proof for the afterlife. On its own terms, biblical scholars tend to agree that there is no clear vision of an afterlife. And that's this is all there is. So if this is all there is, then the, the questions for the meaning and the direction and the purpose of life, especially how do I process suffering and live a life of meaning and of compassion and of caring when I realize that I don't have my just desserts in the time that is allotted to me, it raises these major existential questions that I'm left with. And Kohelet seems to, except really in um, the later chapters, make a just point points to the possibility that there may be something more, right? Um, I think it's in chapter eight, if I'm not mistaken, verse 10, that it says the dust returns to the earth, but the Ruach returns to Elohim who gave it. So that's very ambiguous as to what that really means. But Kohel is saying, I feel like there's something more all I can do is point to it, but I can't show you where the Ruach is going. But I know that there must, I hope that there's something more because otherwise most of life feels like it's nasty, brutish and short as the cynic, the Hebrew cynic might say. So that's the way that things are on the surface. The reason why this commentary that I am sharing with you and excited that you'll hopefully explore more on your own. In my commentary specifically, I went through the entire book of the Zohar the great Jewish mystical medieval commentary on uh, works of the Bible. And I checked every single reference to Kohelet and I was shocked to discover that the major mystical um, commentary on the, the Hebrew Bible reads Kohelet as articulating an explicit view of the afterlife. And specifically in that verse that I shared with you, that the spirit returns unto God who gave it and to Elohim who gave it, that is a proof for reincarnation of souls. That's not in the shot of the text. That doesn't actually appear in the, the black fire of Kohelet, but within the white fire, the mystics say, well, of course it's there. Of course there's reincarnation. Of course there's an afterlife. Of course there's resurrection. All these things are there in the world of 
wisdom. You just have to know how to read the text. So I made a, a, a conscious effort to um, rally against my inherited empirical skepticism that I've, in, that I've inherited from Kohelet and to say, Kohelet, you are truly a process of wisdom, which means that the biblical view of Kohelet and beyond into the Zohar suggests that all of this is part of the unfolding process of uh, wisdom making, which includes an afterlife. So that was an, a remarkably surprising discovery that um, that really makes continues to keep me curious, and I hope it'll keep you curious about Kohelet in um, the commentary on Mary's breath as well. So let me turn to uh, briefly to Robin and to Bev, and then we'll go on to maybe uh, one or two more excerpts together. So hello, I, I'm really enjoying this. So I, I have some thoughts, and they're just kind of random thoughts. So I'll share them and see where they land. Um, and one of the thoughts that first came up was, and we know the story of uh, the engraving on the ring that says, this too shall pass, you know, so going back, you know, and I, I, I try and keep that in mind a lot um, to keep myself in the present moment, uh, which also brings to the other thought where um, I have a, a daughter, and when she was younger in her teenage high school years, was essentially having an existential crisis, you know, uh, you know, fighting, you know, hormones, teenager depression, and, um, <clears throat> you know, saying, you know, what's the purpose of life? Mm -hmm. And, and, and that, that's a really hard one when, you know, and I, I really try to stress with her, it's like, it, there doesn't have to be a purpose. And, you know, maybe it's the purpose is just to, you know, like uh, someone else was saying, was to enjoy, you know, the way things are. And I don't know, it just seems like trying to say that there has to be a purpose puts a lot of almost undue pressure on people trying to find it. And what if they don't find it? And uh, instead to just don't worry if there's a, an actual purpose and just choose to do good things anyways, regardless if there's a purpose. Anyways, those are my well, rambling thoughts. <laughs> I, I wonder whether, um, how many of us have been in the place where your daughter has been, where we have that moment of the existential crisis looking for the meaning of life. And then a wise parent comes and says, well, maybe you just have to be in the moment, go with the flow and enjoy what there is and, and really you know, see the blessing that is this unearned gift from God and to know that it comes from uh, a larger caring force in the universe that we call Elohim. Will that give us the satisfaction to go forward? And Kohelet is struggling with it. And it's interesting, you raised the, uh, the image of that ring that is ascribed, uh, an inscribed ring that says Gamze Yavor, um, according to the rabbinic imagination, King Solomon had that ring. And that was part of Remember, King Solomon, as we as we opened with chapter one, verse one, is ascribed as the author of Kohelet. So this now becomes one of the personae. There's many personae. Kohelet um, seems to wear, don, and, and discard many masks. But if it is written by King Solomon, that means this is the archetype of, of Hebrew wisdom, right? The, the wisest of the wise was Kohelet. And we see that from the way that Kohelet emerges in other books of the Bible, this was the sign of true wisdom. So if you want to be wise, you need to understand many things. You need to also listen to um, the wisest of feminine wisdom that came from his relationship with Queen Sheba and all the other feminine powers that surrounded him. He also knew how to listen to the animals. He knew where wisdom was everywhere in the universe. And part of the experiment of Kohelet is to give us some strategies for cultivating Chochmah. I think what I'll do, Alex, is as the last piece I want to look at, is uh, number eight that we're going to turn to. But let me first, because I want to give you a strategy um, for cultivating this process, this practice of, of Chochmah. So let's go turn briefly to Susanna and to Bev, and then we'll look at the excerpt from chapter uh, eight. I once heard eight. somebody uh, reframe that question of what is the purpose of life as, what is the, she, he, he said, we, it's not for us to find out or determine what is the mystery of life, but just to live the mystery of life. To live the mystery of life, right? And that really requires us to be extremely present to all the things that emerge and to be 
sensitized and deeply aware. And that's part of what Kohelet is doing through these chapters is training us to use those, what we'll call skillful means to form a chokhmah that we're gonna look at like Alex in the, in the, the, the day eight uh, excerpt in a moment. So Bev, thank you. I wanted to say that uh, when you were reading the English and there's certain words in there, I was triggered. So I'm still not calm. <laughs> Because the second thing that happens after I get triggered is, oh, you shouldn't be saying this. You should keep your mouth shut. So with that in mind, the words like evil and sinner, uh, I'm just because I don't know how this was originally written, if it was in Hebrew or Aramaic, because I know in the Aramaic, those are not the words. You're unripe. You're off the path. And everybody is beautiful. There's no, your actions might be bad, but you as a human being and your human parts are not bad. So that always triggers me. And then I wonder, is this real? Are the words real? Or was it like when I took Near Eastern literature in the 60s? Is this written by one of the five groups? And this was their interpretation because of where they were at and, you know, wanting to have power over people through the words. So for me, this unearned gift to me is so rich because I think this is the way Indigenous people in their culture see the earth and our connection to it. So they don't hoard things. And I believe the tribes of Israel, of, of people in Judea at that time, didn't hoard either. They were nomadic. You couldn't. Gifts were given and you were thankful at the time for what you received. And, you know, the next month you could starve to death, but that wasn't the point. You never felt this need to acquire. And um, let, let me let me unpack. You're, you're sharing a lot. It's very thoughtful. And I want to be conscious of what you're sharing and also of time. So um, the, the text is written in Hebrew. There are those that have argued that... Um, some of the fragments um, were found in the places where it says meaning of the Hebrew uncertain in JPS um, suggests that maybe there were some corollaries in Aramaic, but essentially it's a Hebrew text. And a lot of the, the words that are used are familiar and many of the expressions are unfamiliar. And what words like Ra and Ra'ut Ruach um, are speaking about evil that exists within the world, right? That we know that when someone suffers, uh, for causes that we understand, and especially that we that we don't understand, there is a, 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 an awareness that evil exists in the world when people suffer. And that comes up again and again, and Kohela laments that. Why is it necessary for there to be suffering? And also, is there any permanence to the pleasure that comes from all these material things that I have at my fingertips, right? If you go through the rest of the chapters, Kohela will say, I have orchards and I have gold and I have silver and I, I have everything that I need. And I've, I've tasted all uh, of the hedonistic pleasures that uh, any human being could possibly ever desire. And I know that this pleasure doesn't last. I'm looking for something that's more lasting and more permanent. So Kohelet is on that quest. And also on, on, that, on that note, I think there's an abiding hope in Kohelet that even if evil does blow in and out of the world, that it's not something that necessarily is permanent, um, but it is something that, that tends to challenge the goodness, the greater good that, that Kohelet is looking to cultivate and that we're looking to cultivate within the world. There is an assumption, as Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi will later make centuries later in the rabbinic project of the Mishnah, um, of the question that Kohelet is asking much earlier on, it's, it's the same question. What is the righteous path? What is the right path? What is the path of goodness that a human being should walk upon in order to live a meaningful life? That's the, that's the perennial question that is asked within Pirkei Avot. Um, Rabbi Yudansi asked the question, but here earlier, much, much earlier on, maybe between the 4th and the 6th century BCE, Kohelet is asking us to consider that question, to contemplate it. So, with that in mind, let's look at the, the last excerpt together, and then we'll come back for some more questions and reflections, um, which is always appreciated. And I want to look at skill and wisdom. This now comes actually from chapter 10, verse 10. And it's an example of what I will call cultural incommensurability. And I'll explain what that means in a moment, unless there are, are lumberjacks that are here, and then it'll be 
less culturally incommensurable. So you'll see what I mean in a moment, especially if you like Monty Python. Okay. Im kehe habarzel vehulofanim kilkel vechayalim yegaber vitron hachsher chokma. Speaking of the lumberjack, this too is how things are. If the blade of a dull axe is left unwetted, then the lumberjack must use more strength to wield it usefully. From this we learn a truth. Skill is the context in which wisdom becomes detectable. I'll say that again. Skill is the context in which wisdom becomes detectable. Hachsher chokhmah. So now let's take a look and see. Marty and Aubrey. Most trenchant of all is the king's intimation that wisdom is not acquired through even the most intense educative experience. It doesn't matter how many PhDs or how many grad school courses you've been through, but through the kind of ruminative, principled, and deeply perceptive analysis of the world that is available to all who live in the world, as we were saying, who are present to everything that emerges within the experience of being in the world, with their eyes open and with their perceptive capabilities fully functional and specifically not paralyzed or disabled by prejudicial self-serving presuppositions about biases about the nature of things. To be truly present in the world and to experience everything in the flow of it all without the prejudicial self-serving presuppositions about the way things are supposed to be. Think about how relevant that is and how challenging that is, especially in the times in which we find ourselves. Skill, Ruach HaOra says skill. Hechsher Chochmah is the context in which wisdom becomes detectable. Namely, that the advantage of skillful means depends upon the prudent exercise of one's wisdom. This is a crucial point of why this is a form of wisdom that may be universal, but is also somewhat particularly flavored by the Hebrew wisdom tradition, because this uh, form of skillful means requires an exercise of one's wisdom, which means chokhmah, is applied wisdom, exercising forethought in one's action, even with the mundane chores, enables one to do a little that achieves a lot. The application of Chochmah reminds us of its broad range of meanings beyond what we can capture in English when we translate Chochmah merely as wisdom. Remember this now. And this is, again, part of the purpose of the entire um, journey of the book of the Megillah of Kohelet. Chochmah incorporates knowledge, reasoning powers, crafts, and expertise of all sorts that are applied. It's both the knowledge gained by learning and the intellectual powers that can analyze and evaluate and also apply that learning to living a meaningful life. And here, I think it's very important. I'm sure that many of you picked up on this in terms of the resonance of the English. It's worthwhile to compare the Hebrew way of thinking with the Buddhist way of thinking through the Sanskrit equivalent of upaya, which refers to expedient means or an aspect of guidance along the path of liberation where a conscious or voluntary action is driven by an incomplete reasoning about its direction. So for example, upayakashala then comes to mean skill in means or skillful means. The reason that this nuance in translation matters that I'm offering here is that as unique as both wisdom traditions may be in their cultural context, Hebrew and Sanskrit respectively, both appear to be struggling with the challenge of how to teach skills effectively, especially when others are necessarily listening. What does it mean to be an effective teacher of applied wisdom? The teachers that are here on this Kohelet room together, uh, as well as the students understand, this is a burning question for all of us. Kohelet and Buddha each realize that even if the student becomes a sage and eventually possesses a modicum of wisdom, still, when you desire sharing that hard-earned wisdom with eager students, it's no simple task. And skill ultimately 
not just of the teacher, but also of the student, is the context in which that wisdom becomes detectable. So it can be present in the space and the process of the Kohelet experience of convening and gathering and assembling like we are here through the, the Zoom room of BBM. But the real challenge comes when the rubber hits the road. How do we apply this chokhmah to our own individual lives? That ultimately becomes the question of whether uh, the context of our lives reflects the skill in which wisdom becomes detectable. So I'm sharing a lot here with you, but I wanted to, to leave you with another look at that same word that we started with, which we could reflect on for many hours together. And it is worthy of further contemplation and reflection. What is the, the purpose and the application of chokhmah for us in our life's journey? And how does the application of chokhmah allow us to live meaningful lives and to navigate those challenges that we all face, right? And when someone, uh, when that voice inside of ourselves is having an existential crisis, what is the, the value and the good that Chochmah can provide us with when we face those challenges? These are the kinds of, of questions in terms of the application of wisdom in our lives that Kohelet is curious about. And I hope that you are becoming or have already been quite curious about that we, um, that we can now maybe take the last few minutes to, um, to absorb as the Hevel Havalim, the merest breath that, uh, that courses through the universe and, uh, and informs how we live in this moment. So any other curiosities, questions, observations from others that haven't had a chance to, to share yet? I'm open to hearing from you. I think I see Erwin has, it's a clap or it's a, a hand and then uh, Aglaya, I believe. It's it's a hand. Okay. Um, it's the sound of two. It's the sound of one hand clapping. Yes. Exactly. I would switch it around though. Um, it doesn't. I wouldn't make wisdom the thing that drives the skill of behavior. I would say it's more interactive. That um, living wisely drives. You know somebody has wisdom not by what they say, but by their living wisely. Mm -hmm. So when I hear the word detectable, what I what I think of is how do you know somebody is wise? Mm -hmm. You know somebody is wise by looking at the way they live. They enact wise behaviors. So rather than making wisdom kind of an internal trait, I would make it more um, a how you live your life. And then you infer or detect, yeah, that person is really wise. And I, I feel that that's really in line with what um, Kohelet is, uh, is, is teaching us. So it's helpful that you, that you rendered it in those terms. And, and the, the, the example of the, uh, the lumberjack and being able to understand how to use a blade, that's, that's where it becomes detectable, right? You can be uh, a professor with three PhDs and not know how to wield an axe depending on the nature of the blade and how much effort is supposed to be put into the dynamics of making sure that when the blade hits the wood at the right angle, that um, you can actually complete the task at hand, right? So I spoke of cultural incommensurability, that fancy term that um, I like to talk with one of my fellow meditators, Norman Fisher. We talk about this a lot and we look at these texts. We are very far away from these nuggets and kernels and pearls of wisdom that Kohelet was speaking of. And so that puts us at a great disadvantage because we don't always understand what does it mean? How many of us around this Zoom room actually go and chop wood with an ax? Show of hands, a few of us. Okay, all right. I, I saw maybe three hands, Robin and Anne. But that's an example of cultural incommensurability in one generation, we may not know what it means to actually chop wood with an ax, but there is a skillful means that emerges, as Erwin said, that's detectable by the way that you live your life by the way that you accomplish a certain chore with a sense of, of, of dignity and perseverance that reflects a wider um, a, um, application of chokhmah that is, is detectable, right, as we, as we notice together. But you're right, it is about wise living that is meant to be 
part of this process of Kohalat. So let me turn to um, uh, Aglaya. Am I pronouncing your name right? Yes. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. You, you might have already said something about this, so I'm really sorry if I'm just like being repetitive and everything, though. But I put in the chat that um, about um, Psalm 92. And the first I wanted to get done, a brutish man cannot know, a fool cannot understand this. Though the wicked sprout like grass, though all evildoers blossom, it is only that they may be destroyed forever. But this is after he's talking about um, uh, the, you know, the handiwork, the um, great handiwork that God, you know, does. So I'm kind right. of wondering if there's some sort of connection between also knowing that um, this kind of, I guess, wisdom also knowing that there is something more to it so the person who is um, a wicked person is not necessarily prospering they are going to be destroyed forever in some way there's also there's something more to it like i don't know what it could be though like a but a, you know like it's the brutish man who doesn't get it it's the wise man who can understand that so just throwing that out there it's yeah it's a, it's a very interesting comparison to start looking at the, the portraits of wisdom within the Psalms as opposed to uh, Kohelet or Proverbs. And I think there, there are different kind of degrees of uh, wisdom cultivation. And obviously the Psalmist has a very uh, different kind of relationship with God than Kohelet does. So it's an interesting comparison because they are wisdom texts, but I think it's very important to appreciate that the only name of God that Kohelet is willing to, to proffer in the relationship is one mm -hmm. of them is, is, is Elohim. And if you look at the, the, the number of, of intimate uh, usages of language to describe the psalmist relationship to God, it's very different. So that psalm that you're referring to um, speaks of the, the sense of, um, of the creative design, the masterful design of the universe um, by God as the creator in a way that's much more intimate perhaps than, than Kohelet is willing to allow for. And also remember in terms of the, the ascribed authorship, this is an interesting thing to think about too, requires more mm -hmm. reflection, but what's the difference in terms of the way that King David sees the world um, in relationship to God's uh, place within that handiwork? And what is the relationship then that his son Solomon sees following in the footsteps and perhaps building on you know standing on the shoulders of, of, of the giant that was his father but also moving in a direction that was very different than his father and seeing seeing god and, and god's handiwork in a very very different way than his father did and i think that's something that going back to what oh Earl that's did, a can of worms that's awesome <laughs> it is it is an awesome can of worms but it's um as erwin said i think it's really important for us and I think Bev brought this up a couple of times in terms of indigenous wisdom, thinking about what wisdom is detectable for all of us in our own lives from our ancestors, right? Thinking about your relationship to your, to your parents and to your grandparents. And just like even noticing the way that they would chop wood as opposed to the way that we would chop wood, or they would make a filter fish the way that, as opposed to the way we make it or whatever, put in the analogy of whatever it is that you're doing that your, your ancestors did and is the wisdom that you apply to that specific task um, detectable and discernible in the same way that it was the way that your ancestors were doing it? Or is there a distinction between what David was able to do and what Solomon was able to do, right? That David was the right. warrior poet par excellence who had blood in his hands, but wrote the most beautiful love poetry uh, or wisdom poetry in, in the 150 Psalms, but he couldn't build the temple of peace that his son was able to build. He didn't have the, the, the wisdom that was detectable in the generation and the life experience of David was profoundly different than the wisdom of experience that Solomon had. And maybe sometimes that's part of the purpose of, of being able to bring a discerning lens to the wisdom that is detectable both within our lifetime, as well as what we learn from our ancestors, what we carry forward and what we also allow to recede into the background. So it is a can of worms. It's a, it's a delightful can of worms that we're not gonna be able to fully unpack together. Uh, Marty Cohen has already done uh, another wonderful translation and commentary on Psalms, which engages uh, that um, our strength and our haven 
which uh, is something that you can uh, take a look at as well to, to delve into deeper. So let's take maybe, um, Love it. Alex, how are we doing with time, Alex? Uh, we're a little bit over time. I'm we are. Yeah, and just okay. a couple minutes. So and right, unfortunately, we'll have, I think we'll have to wrap up. Um, okay, so should we take one last question and then we'll close from here? Or are we out of time? Uh, if, it's a, if it's a quick question, we can. Okay, let's take it one quickie and then we'll say fairly well for now. I just wanted to say, I actually feel very uplifted with this last one. And to me, it says, practice, practice, practice. And it's discerning what the practice is to bring our, us closer spiritually to earth, the divine, whatever. And I appreciate you using the word discernment. And I just wanted to add, the last couple of weeks, I've been talking to my brother and sister. And we're in the 70s, 80s, and 90s in our age, but we're children about my grandfather, who we called the gentle giant. Hmm. And what I was talking to them about, it wasn't what he did. It wasn't how he acted. It was his presence and that we should be learning from him. Well, that's, that's those are wonderful uh, reflections for us to close on and that we should all be inspired on our discerning journeys towards the application of Chochmah that may be detectable in our lives as well as in the lives of others that we hope to inspire and um, and to bring more of that that goodness and that unearned gift that is already waiting for us to enjoy. And I hope that you will remain curious about Kohelet and uh, Alex has put into the chat generously uh, from on Panui's behalf, a discount code for those that are interested um, to get a copy of Mirror's Breath and to continue the curious conversations together. So thank you everyone for all of your engagement and your presence today. It's been a real blessing. Thanks again. Thank you so much, Rabbi Glazer, for joining us. And thank you all for being here as well. Um, we have a lot of great events coming up next week, um, especially on Monday. If you're in the Phoenix area, we've got an in-person event um, at our office, the Ethics of Rescue, True Stories um, Behind Bergen-Belsen's Liberation. And if you're not in the Phoenix area, there's a virtual option as well. So hope you can all uh, tune into that and have a great rest of your day. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybatemadrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemadrash.org donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.